Greetings, everyone. Welcome to Keep Calm and Carry On. I'm your host, Daniel Paris. I'm delighted to have as my guest today, uh, Benjamin Ho. He's an associate professor at Vassar College. He is the author of a just published Why Trust Matters, An Economist's Guide to the Ties That Bind Us. It's just out from Columbia University Press. Professor Ho, thank you. Thank you so much for agreeing to be on the show. Thank you so much. It's a pleasure to be here. This is this is a really fascinating uh, book that you've produced, and it's really for s- those of us who are involved in the financial services industry. It's really kind of counterintuitive. Uh, I go to work in a highly regulated environment. My every action as an asset manager is subject to SEC and uh, third party organization rules. Uh, and the underlying assumption of that, and I think of many investors who participate in the market is that there's a lot of um, protection against uh, malfeasance uh, and that uh, you can't really trust anyone. Therefore, uh, all these rules and oversight and regulatory institutions need to, to help protect us against it's a, you know, it's a, it's a difficult world out there, challenging world, and uh, you can't trust anyone. And so that's why all this infrastructure exists. And your book is a really refreshing alternate view on that, highlighting the degree to which surprisingly, I think to some people, to the doctors and lawyers of this world, lawyers because they're lawyers, doctors because they're constantly being sued, but that trust relationships are in fact deeply found throughout modern society. And in fact, that that modern society could not function as an economic entity without a series of trust relationships. Could you tell us how you got into this project and approaching economics from this issue of what appears to be counterintuitive, the absence of trust? In fact, you, it's a trust-based system and it has to be necessarily. Yeah, trust is just pervasive in our economy. I think, I think it's so pervasive, we just don't even pay attention to it. Um, I got into this about 20 years ago, um, doing my dissertation for my PhD at Stanford University. Um, and you know, a PhD is a daunting task. You basically have to come up with a research topic nobody has ever worked on before. Um, and trust has been around. Um, I think the classic trust papers in economics um, date back to the 1990s. And Ken Arrow, the founders of modern economics, was talking about trust in the 1960s. So it's kind of been there, but you're right. It's not talked about very often. I often ask my audiences, like often econ students um, at a university, you know, have you heard of trust in your discussed in your classes at all? And most say no. Um, and so that seemed like a ripe topic for me to explore to a- answer questions that you know no one's asked before. Um, and so the question I asked back in my dissertation was, how do we repair trust once trust is broken, right? And you know, of course, we usually use apologies. Um, and I ran experiments with apologies. Most recently, I ran an experiment with Uber, testing how different kinds of apologies can restore trust between a customer and a, and a corporation. But I've looked at you know apologies and trust in lots of contexts, from medical malpractice and doctors doctors, um, and also to like, you know, corporate apologies and share prices. Um, and so it's really all over. And it, it's interesting, your, your section, which is a thread throughout your entire book about apologies, and uh, psychologically, they work really well. Legally, they work really poorly. And so there's this natural tension there. Again, I'm in the financial services. If I apologize for a mistake, and mistakes invariably happen, but if I apologize for a mistake, there are 10 lawyers the next, you know, next morning, uh, with a uh, with paperwork, uh, trying to take advantage of that. So, there's a legal framework that discourages this very human desire to make good, as it were, intellectually or emotionally or person to person level through an apology, and a structure that just 
punishes that for you, you know, punishes you for doing that. Yeah, I've, two of my papers have looked at apologies in medical malpractice, right? Because I think doctors are faced with this all the time. Do I apologize and make a human connection or do I, you know, but I face lawsuits for doing so. Um, and so I think at the time of writing, 26 states had passed laws that make doctor apologies and medical apologies exempt from the legal system, right? To encourage apologies and encourage doctors to apologize. In fact, two junior senators back in the early 2000s named Obama and Clinton actually tried to make it a federal law. They didn't have the clout back then. Um, but my, my research shows that these laws were actually really effective, that states that passed these apology laws to encourage apologies, they saw fewer lawsuits, lawsuits settled faster. Um, and so just like these simple government policies to encourage the building of trust were enormously effective in, you know, uh, enhancing relationships. So there's another thread that runs through it. And here, maybe I'll return to the paradox of, of the lack of trust versus uh, the necessity of trust. And that's game theory runs throughout your entire book. And it, it's, it, it appears to be, correct me if I'm wrong, it appears to be the way in which academic uh, finance, but academic uh, economists almost define trust is through the paradigm or prism of game theory and then apply it in every, whether it's in medical issues or legal or finance, but it's all game theory, game theory that can be quantified and pro made into probabilities. That seems to be, and again, uh, I, I'm challenging you on this, it seems to be the proxy for this very human emotion and, and almost indescribable, indescribable human function of trust is, is game theory? Is that, is that an unfair characterization? I think it's totally fair, right? And I, you know, start off with a, um, a you know, apology at the beginning of the book that I am an economist. I see the world through math and the language and the language of math that most applies to situations like this is game theory. But I want to make an argument that I think game theory is potentially effective for understanding human relationships. Um, there's a great book um, by Bob Frank, um, Passion Within Reason, that basically says that, you know, our emotional connection is really just um, an evolutionary way to help us enact rational behavior, rational behavior that can be modeled with math and can be modeled with game theory models. Um, of course, I know we're missing things. I fully acknowledge that, like, you know, sociologists and psychologists would probably have a different view. I did my best to sort of like integrate those literatures. But, you know, I think game theory, you know, is actually surprisingly effective at sort of uncovering a lot of this behavior. Um, for example, biologists use it to uncover the origins of altruism. And I think that kind of like, you know, social behavior that we see in humans comes from these sort of evolutionary game theory origins. And the idea there would be that altruism is ultimately rewarding, even in a game theory or biological perspective ultimately benefits from out from acts that would appear at least at the first level to not benefit them at all evolution from an evolutionary perspective but in, over the long term do is that correct exactly right so i think uh, you know a lot of your listeners may have heard of the game the prisoner's dilemma um, this is probably the most common example in game theory, which is a dilemma between two people trying to cooperate when they each have individual individual incentives to be selfish, right? So imagine two people working on a project together where each one has individual incentives to shirk, even though they'd both be better off if they worked hard on completing that project. Um, and you see this in the animal world with like, you know, bees working together and cooperating. And you see this in the human world all the time. 
and again, just to push you a little bit, the part that strikes me as a humanist, meaning I define myself, even though I work in finance as a, a historian, is that it does still rely on either rational expectations or rational behavior, the game theory that people will act in a certain way consistently and, and reasonably intelligently. And that's a lot to ask of human beings if you look at the last several thousand years of human behavior, it's a, it's a high hurdle that you're, we're building in the, the academic model assumes pretty, <laughs> you know, pretty high quality uh, material, shall we say. For sure. Right. Um, and so what I would say, though, that is comforting is that it also shows that if people are these sort of calculating, cold, selfish actors that you seem to sort of presume in finance, that they can still find cooperation. Right. And I think that's what game theory also sort of shows, right, that these cold, calculating, selfish actors can learn to cooperate given the right incentives in the game. And there's a reference, I don't know if it's in your book, or, but it's implied, uh, nudges are a very good idea. That is, uh, I forget, it's Cass Sunstein and, and Thaler with nudge. Yeah, that, you know, uh, it, it may not be a hard and firm rule and a threat of a prison term or taking away all your assets or something like that, but a nudge is as effective as a stick. In, uh, a, a positive nudge is much more, is as effective, if not more effective than a, than a threatening stick in terms of, of human behavior. And the nudge can be in the form of a trust act, you know, relationship. Exactly. Nudges are a big part of it. But I want to go back a second to your earlier point about this like world of finance we see that assumes everyone is selfish and assumes everything is basically, you know, based on regulation and, you know, and and these abstract systems and this more human thing that I'm, I'm studying, which is trust, right, which is based on these one on one relationships. And you can sort of see that in the development of game theory within the economics profession. Um, I think Prior to game theory, which sort of started to gain prominence in, say, the 60s, 70s, and 80s, economics assumed, you know, like we see today, abstract markets, right? That you're basically in a world of perfect competition where basically you just have, you know, an infinite number of undifferentiated other actors. Um, and that's why we sort of relied on sort of regulation and abstract systems to regulate things and keep things running smoothly. Um, however, that's a relatively new phenomenon, right? That this idea of perfect competition and infinite actors is something that, you know, is only really a 20th century thing. And if you go back to the sort of, sort of the foundations of human economies, we basically, it was always based on who you knew, the, you know, individual relationships. You would, you, would, you would buy from the shopkeeper you knew. You would have long-term relationships with your suppliers. And we still see those today, and we just sort of forget that they exist. Um, I think the finance example that I think comes to mind um, when, when reading your blog post about trust was, you know, the financial crisis in 2007, 2008. One of the big causes of the financial crisis was that it turned out that banks relied very much on other banks, right? This counterparty risk was surprisingly important. We sort of, you know, came to sort of take for granted that you would be able to buy and sell in this abstract marketplace. But it turned out, no, that, you know, banks relied very much on their relationships with other banks. And when another bank let them down, the whole system, you know, was shown to be fragile. And this this is where trust actually comes into play. And I, I mentioned in the blog post, and it's implied in your book as well. There are legal constructs that force people to do things. But I, I make this argument that you don't engage in a contract with another entity because uh, uh, an action, a transaction with another entity, because you have a legal recourse if it fails. You engage in the action because you believe that the other party is actually going to do what they're going to say they're going to do. And it's a primary trust activity, and it's only followed by the rules and the laws. That is, if you didn't believe the custodian 
was go for in a financial transaction, if the custodian was going to do what they're supposed to do, or the transfer agent, and there are a lot of intermediaries in, in my line of work, brokerages and so forth and so on. If you didn't believe that they were going to do what they're do based on past experience, reputation, personal knowledge, you certainly wouldn't send a check down that uh, or money down that path just uh, with the thought that, oh, I have a, a group of lawyers on retainer who will force them to do what they're supposed to do. That's not how the world works. We don't do almost any transaction from purchasing a refreshing carbonated beverage from the Coca-Cola Corporation to writing a check to a huge custodian only on the basis of a legal threat follow-up following. We do it on the basis of trust. And in that regard, trust is is the first thing. It's the first thing in the morning that we're doing. And it's the it's the predominant action uh, that we're engaged in. At least it's it strikes me. And yet the rules are all the same. Again, 1-800-SUE-ME and, and enormous amounts of regulation and so forth. But in fact, you can't operate in a complicated society, despite all the lawyers, without some sort of trust relationships. And so that that's, you know, I, I don't see it in terms of game theory. I, I, I And I certainly don't see it in terms of rational actor or uh, rational expectation theory. But I see it every day that in, large institutions can't function without a tr- trust, uh, uh, an underlying trust concept. I like your Coca-Cola example, right? You're, you're not going to like sue Coca-Cola if your Coke tastes, tastes off one day or something, right? You just trust is going to work. Um, and then the other example I sort of love is this, um, Silk Road website on the dark mm. web, right? This is a website, basically the eBay for illegal drugs. And so there is no contractual, you know, enforcement there, right? Um, this is a website where you would go and you would send money to a drug dealer, right, of illegal drugs, and trust that they would send you like legitimate drugs back. Um, and this just worked really well, right? It was a billion dollar enterprise that was based entirely on trust, right? There was no legal enforcement of, of that setting. Um, the other example I like is that I have a I have a colleague at Columbia. I teach at Columbia part-time, Marina Halep. She's moved on now, but um, her research is looking at contracts and contract theory. And she finds that even legal contracts are often intentionally le- left, left vague in some parts to leave room for the relationship to grow, right? That in order for a relationship between two parties to grow, you basically need a little bit of risk, a little bit of vulnerability to sort of learn that you could trust this other person. And that if you have sort of too many you know, rules on that on that contract and too much reliance on the legal system, then you actually aren't leaving enough room for trust, right? Trust requires vulnerability in order to develop. And we sort of see that in legal contracts. Um, another story I like is that there's this rock band, I forget which rock band, that used to have a clause requiring that, you know, it, it, in, in, the, in their green room before the concert, all the M&Ms had to be a certain color, like green or something, right? And the point of this wasn't, you know, it wasn't because they liked green M&Ms. It wasn't because they were going to sue them over the green M&Ms. They were just checking that did did the um, did the somebody read the paperwork? Did they read the paperwork? Right? Did they you know carry carry out all the safety measures that this band requires? Um, and it's all about like is this somebody you can trust in this relationship? Not and it wasn't about the legal you know the the legal regulations, even though that's sort of what we think about when we think about our modern market market system. You know, I, this is only partially related, but an interesting story from a prior uh, podcast. I had a guest on who uh, is the owner of uh, a network of grocery stores in the Philadelphia area, where I'm originally from. And he is notable in that he hires formerly incarcerated individuals and participates in their reintegration into society. And he says, yeah, it seems counterintuitive, but actually 
they're very good business people. They have to worry. These were often former uh, people involved in the drug trade. They have to worry about inventory, customers, supply chain, logistics, security, everything. They don't communicate in the manner in which a modern grocery business was, but that can be taught. But otherwise, they have every every skill they need to help run a grocery store. And I uh, said it it managed, you know required a trust, uh, uh, either a leap of faith or is a, a term, but but maybe not a very good term because maybe it's not just a leap of faith, but just simply a trust that they could transition into this environment because they clearly had the skills to help run uh, grocery stores. And so he he was long on trust and um, it seemed to uh, have worked for him. Finance, however, again, I can't help but return here. Sure. Uh, modern portfolio theory, not your corner of, of the economic uh, spectrum. Efficient markets, not your corner of the economic spectrum. Uh, all of those assume almost zero role for human decision making. They, you simply have you have some certain subjective categories of what your risk tolerance is, what your expectations are. They're often quantitative themselves, and then you plug it in and you get an answer, and you, you don't really do anything else because uh, human judgment, including. Uh, judgments about the future are supposed to be just rational expectations. There is no role for no non-quantitative activity. This is what I'd like to get to because this is what struck me personally. Is there any role in the academic finance literature for the trust that you're describing? Because I read your book and it's not on the CFA curriculum. Your book is not in the MBA curriculum. And the trust that you're describing is not the trust that is dismissed at the University of Chicago in favor of, of market. Am I misreading that? Is there trust embedded in it? Because again, there is no section in the CFA on trust. It just isn't. And, and I am running into, I am often asked, and I'll kind of end my prologue and then give you the floor, yeah. uh, properly the floor. But with one example of that, I am frequently asked, because I happen to work in the markets, I'm frequently asked by people who are not in the industry, but are just outside the industry. Hey, got a hot stock tip or what's, what should I get in or should I get out? What should I do now? And my singular answer to them is from your book, even though I've been saying it for 20 years and you just, the book just came out, but thank you for writing the book, is find a financial advisor you trust, period. Stop right there. Have a trust relationship with your financial advisor and then go back and living, go back and live your own life. Don't, don't, watch the markets, that type of thing. Trust that someone will do as best as they can with the information they have to the best of their ability and stop worrying. And that's my trust answer to a non-trust area of activity, or what appears to be a non-trust area of activity, which is academic finance. How, how I just seems that there, there's too much quantification of human behavior in academic finance and not enough trust. How, how do you react to that? Yeah, I think, well, two things. One is that I have given this talk at like Goldman Sachs and at various, you know, conferences for high net worth investors. Um, and I think one thing I tell them is that because of the efficient market hypothesis, right, because in these sort of large abstract markets, you know, I think one of the places to look for returns is in thin markets, right, where there are not lots of people interacting. And that's exactly where trust becomes necessary, right? I think there's, there's a tension, you know, in the book of tracing the history of trust back to the like hunter-gatherer days where we lived in small communities and there's only a handful of people. And, and there, trust is really important to, like, these big abstract markets where there's millions of participants. And, you know, sort of in very thin markets, um, especially, like, in venture capital, where you're basically investing in new firms and there's only a handful of participants, trust is really important. 
Um, and you mentioned financial advisors. One of my students right now is actually working on a research uh, project trying to see, you know, how, like, what's the impact of financial advisors on trust? Um, how does trust in the financial advisor matter? How does, uh, how does a good financial advisor affect the person's trust in the financial system? Um, and so I think that's a great question. I think it's really important. Anytime when you have this one-on-one -on -one relationship, trust is crucial. Um, but I want to push back and say that I do think this is all consistent with rational expectations, right? I am an economist, so I do think that I do think of the world in terms of utility functions and games and rational expectations. But we just apply it to something different, not maybe not rational expectations to the returns of the stock, but rational expectations to the behavior of the person you're interacting with. Right. So I define trust as a belief about the intentions of the person you're interacting with and a belief that, that, those, that those intentions are conducive to cooperation. Right. So that is my definition of trust. And then, you know, once you set, set up a definition that way, we could use, you know, standard mathematical models like Bayes' rule to basically say that people do have rational expectations about those intentions. Um, my research on apologies is actually all about rational expectations and how do apologies shape my beliefs about the trustworthiness of another person after they apologize. So just for our audience, uh, rational expe expectations economics takes kind of the notion of rational behavior uh, in the observed world. Uh, so much of the of what's important for us uh, politically, economically, socially, scientifically is a forecast about the future. And there it's granted things are unknown, but rational expectations is a mechanism of sort of forecasting into the future the same type of behavior or rational expectations of said behavior into the future. So it's a way that I may know what the Coca-Cola Corporation has delivering today, but an investment in the in the KO stock is really about what's going to happen in the next 10 years. And I can't simply say, I have no idea what's going to happen in the next 10 years. That would be kind of a silly basis for an, expect, uh, for an investment. So instead, I'm using tools that are based on rational expectations in the future to justify or forecast future outcomes, net present value back to the present, I make my investment. So again, just the, the term rational expectations, I think for the doctors and lawyers, uh, worth defining for them. Right. Um, I think it's traditionally using finance to talk about the idea that I assimilate all the information in the marketplace, right? Information about the company, information about what the Federal Reserve might do, information about projected inflation, et cetera. And I use that to form prices. And what I'm saying for trust is trust is not a different. I'm just assimilating all that information about the trustworthiness of who I'm interacting with, about their future behavior. Um, and I think too often as you said, in finance, we sort of forget there's a person on the other side of the screen, right? That, you know, when you buy and sell a stock, you're sort of like buying and selling it into a, term, into a Bloomberg terminal or something, and it just goes off into the ether. But, you know, whenever, wherever there's a buyer, there's a seller, there's a person on the other, other end. In very thick markets where there's like, you know, millions of, millions of buyers and sellers, that, that's a reasonable, reasonable representation. Um, but, you know, game theory developed in economics, recognizing that lots of markets are not so thick. Lots of interactions are not, are not so abstract that they're also they're based on one-on-one -on -one relationships. You mentioned doctors, right? I think the relationship between a doctor and a patient is one where trust is very important. Um, and part of my research is sort of how can doctors better restore that relationship because trust, you know, in the medical system has been declining quite a bit over the past few decades.
Yeah, I'm involved in a couple of early stage companies, and there's nothing but trust there. There, you know, because they don't have 20 years of data, and they have a good idea. I think it's a good idea. I trust that it's a good idea. I trust the people who are behind it, but it's very early stage. So the the math, to the extent there are math, uh, in, there's math involved. It's made up numbers, forecasts, and so forth. Uh, it, ultimately, it's just just down to trust. Let's talk about the trust issue that is. Uh, so uh, of great interest to so many people uh, who are frustrated with fiat currency right now and have found an exhaust valve. I'm sure you, you get to discuss this every day, and I apologize for having you go over it one more time. Put, you know, uh, from my perspective, it's fairly straightforward. Alternative currency, cryptocurrency is a, a system of distrust or mistrust, but it ultimately is an alternate system of trust, uh, trusting in different entities rather than current entities, uh, governments that uh, Federal Reserve Board, for instance, that people are frustrated with. Yeah, I was originally going to put like blockchain or Bitcoin in the subtitle of the book just to like, you know, sell, nudge book sales. <laughs> but I also didn't want to spend all my time talking about blockchain and Bitcoin. Um, but yeah, I think money is all about trust, right? The words we use to talk about money, right? Like the full faith and credit of the, you know, U.S. Treasury um, backs our money supply. Um, and those are all words about trust. Um, and I think I start off with the history of money going back, you know, like thousands of years to the invention of money, where basically, you know, it was all about favors, right? That hunter gatherer, when they went and like, you know, killed a wildebeest, that was too much food for them to eat, right? So they would basically share the food with somebody else. Um, and, you know, you hopefully would share it with somebody that would share it back with you when they killed their own wildebeest. Right. And so basically you're giving them a favor, you're, you're giving them a favor in exchange for a hopeful favor in the future. Over time, they started using markers to like, you know, record those favors. Right. The original, um, the original, um, the most oldest extant writing we have is not poetry. They're not rules of law. They're accounting. Right. They're I owe you a cow. Yeah, and so we have those favors. Um, gossip and discussion and talking, um, according to Dunbar, was, we, we learned to talk to each other just to keep track of who is trustworthy and who is not trustworthy. And money is just another way to do that, right? So on the island of Yap, when you owed somebody a cow, you would roll this giant stone rock to their house. Right? And then over time, we realized we don't need a giant stone rock. We could just put you know, a, a coin <laughs> and give that coin to somebody to show that you owe them a favor. And money is just a way to sort of keep track of those favors. Um, and so today we don't use rocks. We don't use um, coins. We use you know, currency. Um, and like U.S. dollar is basically already a digital currency, right? Most of the money supply is not in like pieces of paper. Most of the money supply is just, you know, bits on a computer database in a bank somewhere. Um, and so, you know, this idea of shifting to a cryptocurrency is actually not that crazy, right? We already have a digital currency. Um, and so it's not that different. We shouldn't be that surprised by it. People have always been um, interested in alternative currencies, right? So I think I understand where the you know desire for something like Bitcoin is coming from. People have always favored like a gold standard because they just sort of distrust anything associated with the federal government. But I think most people, most investors are perfectly fine trusting the federal government. We trust the Federal Reserve to maintain the money supply. Even in a time of unprecedented crisis like COVID, 
generally interest rates were low. Um, people trusted the U.S. to pay back our debts. I think all of that is working fine. Um, alter- additionally, I, I think that blockchain is you know, not just Bitcoin, right? It's basically trying to use an algorithm to create systems that obviate the need for trust. And I think there's some value to that. But I also think that you know, just like my example earlier of how contracts are often left a little bit vague um, to promote trustworthiness, that if you sort of take out the humans from the system, that might not be a good thing, right? That I think it's actually kind of good that we rely on a human touch um, to, to transactions. And the more we try to automate that human connection away um, by sort of putting it all into an algorithm on a blockchain, we might lose something important as well. And that's, that's where I uh, encounter, again, from an academic finance perspective, each improvement in academic finance appears to remove or reduce the human contribution uh, further and further. So as you think about expected returns of a stock and uh, variances and uh, unknown factors, whatever the quantitative finance answer was in the 1960s <clears throat> or 70s, it's gotten uh, so much better, so much more precise in the 80s, 90s, aughts, and so forth, that it does appear to be that you're coming to a Borg-like stage where the humans are not welcome. I am thinking about blockchain in terms of uh, you know Terminator, where you create a <laughs> freely popular cultural references, I'm sure, but you set up systems where humans are not involved, bad things are happening. That's one caution that I have. The second is, ultimately, there has to be a trust relationship even in a blockchain, because it's a system of programmers, computers, and even though it appears to be at a lower level of trust in fiat, it is still a trust that these computers uh, are going to settle the way they're supposed to uh, and that you, the system will function. I mean, you still are ultimately engaged in a system. In fact, there's an enormous amount of traffic because you don't know a single person there. You, you are trusting unknown entities as opposed to your local local entities. That's in some ways an even greater leap uh, of faith. So uh, re- really fascinating stuff here. Let me ask this. What has the ra- the book has been out for a little bit. What what has been the reaction to in an age of distrust, universal distrust? What has been the reaction whether it's Goldman Sachs, not the most trustworthy people in the world, or others to a meditation on the ubiquity of trust in our on our daily dot modern daily lives? Yeah, the first question I get at all of these interviews and talks actually is almost always about how do we repair trust, right? How do we restore trust? Um, I started writing this book four or five years ago, and that was sort of less on the top of you know the mindset. But now I'm thinking of writing a second book just on that question of restoring broken trust. Um, and I think a lot of people sort of associate broken trust in the system with like the Trump administration. But if you look at the data, this broken trust actually goes back several decades. That trust in institutions have been declining for the past almost 50 years now. Um, Trust in the media has gone down. Trust in medicine has gone down. Trust in Congress has gone down. Um, And so how do we fix that? And I think part of it is just diagnosing the problem. I think um, part of it is actually not that we distrust generally, um, or it's that we distrust the general thing. We still trust the specific. Right? We still trust our own congressperson. We just distrust Congress. We still trust our own doctor. We distrust medicine. We still trust the news we watch. You know, we, we watch the news you trust, right? But you don't trust the media generally. And so I think what's gone on that accounts for this general distrust um, is just more segregation, right? That we just sort of have 
um, a more segregated, more heterogeneous population. And in some ways that is good. And in some ways that's inevitable, but it would be nice to sort of have institutions that sort of restore some kind of hom homogeneity, some kind of common cultural connection between everybody. Right. I think what we have now is you see people segregating ideologically, um, you know, by, by, by geography. They segregate online in terms of the website you, you go to and the social media you use. You segregate by sort of class in our workplaces. Right? You used to have janitors and software engineers in the same company. And now all that's been outsourced so that they don't even work in the same company anymore. And so we are just now in our own little increasing identity bubbles. And it'd be nice to somehow build some kind of more cohesive, you know, cross cutting identity to sort of help build back the trust that we used to have. I uh, agree with you profoundly on the need for that and and wish you well uh, in that venture. I will be uh, staying tuned. The book is Why Trust Matters, An Economist's Guide to the Ties That Bind Us. Benjamin Ho, thank you so much for, for being on the show. Thank you so much. This was a lot of fun.